Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Will you marry me? That's a, that's a pretty big question. But um, do you want fries with that? Not so big a question. What is life all about? I mean, what does it actually look like to live a good life? It's a pretty big question. What color should we paint in the bathroom? That's important, I suppose, but not such a big a bigger question. Why is there suffering in the world? Why would God let that happen? What about tea or coffee? Which would you prefer? (laughs) There's some big questions, and there's some not-so-big questions, aren't there? What about this question? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? What category would you put that in? Maybe you'd put that in, a well, I suppose, religious people. If you're into that kind of thing, you might want to go and and have a a look at what Jesus has to say, you know, and maybe a bit of Gandhi and a bit of Muhammad and a few other books, um, might as well, if you're into religion. But really, it's not that important for all of us. Is it one of those kind of tea or coffee, chips or no chips kind of questions? Or is it one of the what is life all about kind of questions? Is it possibly the deepest and biggest question of all? Well, Jesus brings this question up on a country walk. Let me read it to you. It's in Mark chapter 8. If you've got a church Bible, page 1011. Page 1011, Mark chapter 8. And this is going to be the last sermon in Mark until after Christmas when we pick it up again, which is just as well, really, because we have magically, not really magically, Sammy's arranged it like this, so that we come to the very half point of Mark, possibly the most important verses in the whole of the book. It really is the very center the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? So verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The answer to that question, or at least the question itself, comes on a country walk, doesn't it? A bit of a a quiet walk, a wonder with the disciples. If you've been reading the last few chapters, if you've been here, you'll know that Jesus is usually around enormous crowds, even when he tries to get some peace and quiet. The crowds come and they follow him and they track him down. And so this time, they're on the move. They've gone for a good country walk, and Jesus is going to settle down and teach the disciples something. You could maybe think of this as, a, as an examination time. You know, we're halfway through the gospel, halfway through the story. What do the disciples make? What have we learned so far about Jesus? But it's not really an, an examination. It's more of just a, a friendly question. It's a kind of relaxed atmosphere, but really, the biggest question you could think of And he asked them, who do you say I am? And they reel off a few of the answers that we've heard already. 
You might remember just from a couple of pages back in chapter 6, we heard about who people were saying Jesus was, that he was John the Baptist, but come back from the dead. That would be strange, wouldn't it? Or Elijah, even more strange, a man who lived, a prophet who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before, back from, well, actually, Elijah didn't die. Elijah was whisked off in a chariot, as the English thing in Twickenham, whisked off in a chariot up to heaven. So could this be Elijah come back and, you know, on a chariot back from heaven down to earth again? The people have some pretty wild ideas about who Jesus is. They are, aren't they? I mean, think of the Jewish people. Who would have been their heroes? Well, John the Baptist was one, for some anyway, but Elijah was definitely another. Elijah was one of these almost semi-supernatural characters, because it's not every day that somebody doesn't die, but gets whisked up into heaven straight away on a chariot of fire. It's not every day that that happens. And so when they look at Jesus, when they start gossiping and talking about who is this who teaches like that, who is this who can walk on water and, and feed us with just, I mean, thousands of us, with just a few loaves and a couple of fish? Who is this that can raise that old woman from, um, from her sickbed? Who can take a dead child and, and just wake them up? Who is it that can do stuff like that? It must be somebody. I mean, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a, an interesting character. He's not just like our political leaders who are powerful and can do what they want. But this is somebody almost supernatural. There's something about him. See, it's a real high honor, isn't it, of them to say that he's Elijah, come back down from heaven. There really is something supernatural about this Jesus. But is that enough? Jesus presses on, doesn't he? He says, okay, that's what they say. But what do you say? Is it enough just to say that he's a really super amazing, powerful prophet, a bit like Elijah? No, something else happens when Jesus asks that question. Peter pipes up, and it's as if, for him, the fog is lifted. All of these things that Jesus has been doing, and the disciples really aren't sure who he is. There's times where they're in the boat, and they're terrified of him. There's times when he says stuff, and even just a couple of paragraphs before, we might see it in a minute, and we'll study it in Rooted Groups this week. Jesus does things and says things, and they have no idea what he's talking about. But at this moment, it seems like the fog is lifted. A shaft of light comes through the gloom, and Peter says, you're not just any old prophet, Jesus, even a very special supernatural kind of prophet. You are the Christ. You are the promised king, the one we've been waiting for, for all of history. You are the son of God. Let's read it again and see what Peter says. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ the one we've all been waiting for. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, you've got, you've got the wrong idea. Let me explain to you who I really am. He says to them, essentially, yes, you're right. But you haven't got the whole story yet. So don't tell anybody about me just yet. Now, the gap between verse 28 and 29, them saying, oh, John the Baptist, Elijah, and then saying, oh, you're the Christ. It's a huge gap. There's an Atlantic Ocean's worth of kind of theological space between those two things, isn't there? Because a, a great super prophet, well, is nothing compared to the God who sent that prophet. But what do prophets do? Prophets look forward to something else, don't they? They don't really ever point to themselves. They point forward to something that they're looking towards, or they, they tell you about somebody that, that they want you to hear about. They're always pointing away from themselves. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and says, it is about me. He's either insane or, I mean, seriously mistaken, or there's something about him, and he really is 
who he says he is. That he's not just a prophet pointing the way, but he is the way. That he isn't just somebody who can tell you where to find bread to eat, but that he is the bread of life who will sustain you in this life and the next. There's a huge gulf between verse 28 and 29. I mean, ordinary people, they don't have a category that's much bigger than a prophet, except one category, and that's God himself. So who on earth is this? He's not just a prophet, not just John the Baptist, not just a special teacher or an interesting figure of history. He must be God himself. It's a big, unique question as well, isn't it? Do you see how important it is? Think of the stuff that we've heard, or if you've been here, maybe this is your first time, if you haven't been here, go and take a Bible home with you if you don't have one at home, and read through the, the, the first few chapters. It'll only take you 20 minutes, half an hour. Just see the kind of things that Jesus does, and you'll see why this is such an important question. I've mentioned most of them already. Healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding people with nothing. Who on earth is this? It's a huge question, isn't it? Is this God standing before us? Is this God not distant and far away, but come close to us? Is this God not sitting in some palace enjoying all the finest, nicest, happiest, most comfortable of treatment, but in our shoes with blisters on his feet, with mud between his, uh, between his toes and dirt under his fingernails? Is this God with blood on himself after being beaten? Is this God hanging on a cross and dying for us? Because that's where he's heading. It's a unique question, isn't it? A foundational question for, for the knowledge of God. Is this him or is this not? Because if this isn't God, then we don't really know what God is like. We're back to all the prophets and the teachers. We're back to our own ideas. And God is far away and hasn't really spoken to us. Or maybe if he has, then it's in a language we don't understand. But if this is God, then he's come close and he's suffered with us and he really loves us. So it's a huge question, isn't it? Who is this man? I don't know, what do people around us know about Jesus? What would their answer to that question be? If you ask them, what do you say about Jesus? Well, we hear his name a fair bit, don't we? Mostly as a swear word, but I imagine people would have plenty of different ideas about him. But Peter's made the discovery. He knows who this really is. So that's our point number one, this marvelous discovery that Peter makes. This is the Christ, not just a teacher, not some magical man, but the, the Christ, the promised king, the son of God, God himself walking in human history. But then we come to, after Peter's marvelous discovery to a bit of a miserable downfall. Have a look at this. From verse 31, Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, it feels a bit like Jesus has been teaching on this for a while. Mark always summarizes things as short as he can. He kind of boils everything down, but it feels as you read it like Jesus is, is then teaching them. He sits them down and he goes, yes, lesson number one is done. Now we can move on to lesson number two. Do you remember your first driving lesson? Um, I remember mine because it was two hours long, it was quite expensive, and all I did was clutch control. Literally, uh, the, the corner around our, from our house in the next cul-de-sac, I sat there with, with my driving instructor, just doing clutch control, forward and back, and forward and back, for, for pretty much two hours. 
and he talked and explained different things. And I was a bit frustrated. I think, oh, why? I've spent all that money for two hours to learn how to control the clutch. But it's an important thing to do, isn't it? Suppose unless you drive an automatic car, learning how to use the clutch is, a, is an important thing. It's lesson number one. You can't go out on the roads until you know how to go and then stop. Um, and go and, and then stop. You can't go out and start on lesson number two until you've done lesson number one. So lesson number one is what? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. And we could stop right there. Mark's gospel, gospel could stop right there. And we would have enough information to know that this is the king of all of the world. This is the king who made you and me. And we must bow, bow, bow down to him. He is the Christ and the king. That's lesson number one. Enough for us to trust him and to see him and to come and bow our knees before him. But he does give us more, except that it's, it's perhaps not what we would expect from a king. He sits the disciples down and he starts teaching them about what kind of king he's going to be. I mean, they were expecting somebody who would come and kick out the Romans, somebody who would sit on David, great king David's throne, the David who killed Goliath, David, sit on his throne and be even greater than him and even greater than Solomon and, and put the world to right. He'll do justly, he'll love mercy, and he'll reign forever and ever. His kingdom will never have any end. That's who they're expecting the Christ to be. And then Jesus sits them down and says, lesson number two, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And that in that place, the chief priests, the elders, they're going to reject me. And then I'll be killed. Three days later, I'll rise again, whatever that means. But I'm going to die. He spoke plainly about this. And it seems you can almost imagine, can't you, Peter, who's, he knows his stuff. He's been sitting at his mother's knee, being taught the Bible, being taught about great King David and King Solomon and the king who was to come. He's been sitting, learning about that since he was a boy. And now here he is, the king, he's finally here. But he's going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'll be crucified. All of these leaders that perhaps you've looked up to, all of these preachers who've been preaching in your synagogue, all these people who taught your mum the kind of things that she taught to you, they're going to reject me. They'll turn away and they'll put me on a cross and I'll die. So you can imagine Peter getting more and more uptight, more and more, what on earth is he talking about? This is ridiculous. This is blasphemous. Jesus, you can't die. And so he stands up and rebukes his master. And Jesus says to him, and isn't this one of the most severe things we ever hear Jesus say? Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, at all of them. It's the kind of thing that they're all thinking at the same time, but Peter's the mouthpiece. He looks at all of them and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Just dwell on those words for a moment. Think about the way that Satan works in the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Maybe you don't even believe in, in devils and demons and kind of spiritual powers beyond our sight. But if you, if you do, and you should if you're a Christian, we are supernatural people. Um, what does their work like? What does Satan do in the world? Well, he doesn't turn up with horns and um, and tridents or anything strange like that. This is his work, is to get people to think about God on their own terms. Do you see that? It's to get people to think about God in just purely human ways. That's what Peter's doing, isn't it? He's learned about God and it fits. God is great. He's high. He's huge. He's amazing. He's powerful. And so when God comes into the world, of course he's going to be great and high and huge and mighty and powerful and defeat everything. That's what God is going to be like, right? And then Jesus blows up his categories. 
Jesus says, you've only listened to half of the Bible, half of those Old Testament prophecies. You've missed the second half. You've missed passages like Isaiah 53 that we'll come to read at Christmas time about a, a king, but a king who would come and suffer, a king who would be born in a stable or a barn or a cave, a king who would be laid in straw instead of on a nice bed with loads of good coverings, a king who would grow up, be rejected, hated, misunderstood, and then go to a cross and die. That's the kind of God that he is. That's what we can expect people to, to do with him today. We pray for revival, and of course we should. But we shouldn't expect much more than this, that when, when we share the good news, when we share Jesus with our family and friends, when we share him with our culture, when we share him with our world, we shouldn't expect much more than people saying, not interested in that. Or even more, wanting to throw him out, wanting to crucify him again, and, and us with them. We shouldn't expect a whole lot more from our world, because this kind of thinking is everywhere, isn't it? Perhaps it's even in our own hearts. Strange maybe feels a little harsh to call it satanic thinking, but this is Satan's work, isn't it? To make people not be able to see who God really is. And that isn't always just in atheism, kind of not believing in God at all. Most of the time, it's just in believing some small version of God, making a God in our, in our, in our own liking, a kind of God who fits in with my view of the world, a kind of a God who would help me out and never be angry with me. A kind of a, of a God who would just do what I'd like him to do and, and never really not do what I'd like him not to do. This is what we often think, or how we often think about God. But Jesus says, look, I've come to be the king, but the way that I'm going to defeat my enemies is really an unexpected way. He says there's rejection down the road in Jerusalem. That this final tragedy of his death... It's going to be tragic, it's going to be sad, and yet that really is the true beginning of the redemption of all mankind. Because, you see, the power of what happens in that final act in Mark's gospel of his death, the power of his crucifixion, is worth more than any of the other miracles put together. It's worth more than anything we've, we've seen so far in chapters 1 to 8, because miracles don't save the world. You could go around and do all the miracles you wanted, but the world would still be as it is broken and twisted and turned away from God, full of beauty and yet full of darkness and sadness as well. Miracles don't save the world. And Peter needs to know that. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You need to understand what God is really going to do in the world, that he's going to come and die for it. He's going to come and take all of that brokenness, all of that sinfulness, all of that rebellion on his own shoulders and take it away once and for all. He's going to make... Make it possible for, for the world to be reborn, for each one of us in our hearts and then one day in our bodies to be reborn into a new but, but familiar, this, this world but made new kind of existence. When people think of God with the mind of a person, we often get to a God who fits in with our own liking. The good news is that God doesn't fit in with us. God has a far better plan than we could ever imagine. But people don't see it. Often, perhaps, we don't see it. Peter doesn't see it. He sort of sees it, but he doesn't as well. It's like he's blind in one eye, isn't it? He sees that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't see that he's a suffering Christ. He sees that, that he's the king, but doesn't see that he's also the suffering servant, like in Isaiah 53. And so why do people not see that? 
It's uh, worth asking that question. Why are we blind to that reality sometimes? Well, perhaps it's because we're like the Pharisees. And like I said, we'll study this in rooted groups later on this week. If you're not part of a rooted group, it's a good idea to get involved with them. They're little communities of people who um, study the Bible together, who enjoy each other's company, I hope, um, who, who meet together, who pray, and who look after each other through the week. It's not just a Bible study in the week. It's a community of people. So if you're not involved in one of those kind of mini communities within our big community, well, do get involved in one. But we'll look this week at the beginning of chapter 8, where the Pharisees, these some of these religious teachers come to Jesus and they say, would you show us a sign? Show us a sign and prove to us that you're really God. And what has, Jesus has just done an incredible miracle. He's just fed 4,000 people, which, by the way, is the second time he's done that. A few weeks or months before that, he'd fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish um, out in, uh, in barren places where there wasn't any food or shops to, uh, to get food in. Jesus has just done amazing miracles, and they come again and they say, show us a sign. They're cynical. They look down on Jesus. They're never convinced. Um, they have seen plenty of the things that he, that he does, but they're not convinced by it. They're in cynical rebellion. And maybe that's where you are. I imagine it might not be because you're in church this morning. But that's one way of, of not believing this. That's one way of kind of still staying in the fog, is of looking at Jesus thinking, nothing really fits, nothing satisfies me. I need more than that, and so we turn away from him. That's one way that we do it. And another is to be like these disciples, just to be blind, just to not really get it. And it's difficult then to know what to do. I mean, what happens when we just can't seem to put together the jigsaw of Jesus and Christianity, where it seems like that fog just isn't lifting, where I can understand the words you know, that are coming out of my mouth, I can read the Bible and understand the words and understand the stories, but I just don't get it. I just don't understand. It just doesn't feel particularly real to me. What happens when we're in Peter's shoes, where we see it, but we don't see it at the same time? Well, what we need is for Jesus to come and open our eyes. Have a look. Flick back over the page if you're following along. Let me read you a story. It seems a bit of a, a random story because Jesus has been teaching the disciples and talking to them and says to them, do you still not understand? This is back in verse 21. They're, they don't get it at all. They're having a conversation in a boat about bread or something, and they just don't understand who he is. So do you still not understand? And then instead of, us telling us, instead of Mark then telling us who Jesus is, kind of moving on straight to verse 27, he has this strange story about a blind man. Let me read it to you. He came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw, seven, he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. What's going on in that miracle? Well, at first it seems a little bit embarrassing, doesn't it? That Jesus has tried to heal someone it just hasn't quite worked. A bit like going to the optician. Imagine what it would be like. You go to the optician to get your nice new prescription and those fashionable new, um, new frames. You, want, you wander in, oh, lovely new prescription, out the door, walk along the street, and uh, oh, you uh, almost bump into someone. You say, oh, good day to you. I'm sorry about that. But it, it's a tree. Um, and then you carry on walking, and you're, I don't know, late for your bus. You can't quite see your watch. That's a, a bit strange. And so you run up to somebody and say, oh, can you tell me, has the bus come or not? Have I missed it? 
Oh, it's another tree. Hopefully, somebody would help you see that, and then you turn around and go back to the opticians and say, I think you've given me somebody else's prescription. These just aren't working. So Jesus comes along, this man comes to him, and he does the usual thing, you know, speaks to him, touches him. Can you see? No, not really. What is going on? There are people wandering around like logs. He's still got a fog over his eyes. Can you see where this is going? He can't see. He can see, but he can't see. And so Jesus does it again. Is Jesus just running out of power or something? Is he tired? Does he need to go and charge himself back up again? That's not what's going on. There's plenty of stories about Jesus healing blind men, and Jesus has no problem with it at all. Jesus is giving us a sign here, and Mark spots it and writes it into the perfect place in his story and says, this is what's going on with the disciples. This is what's going on with Peter. He sees, but he doesn't see. He's got one eye blind, like this man. He sees that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't see the whole picture. And the only thing that can help him is if Jesus opens his eyes. Do you see? So if you're struggling to put this big jigsaw puzzle of Christianity together, if you feel like, I've got so many questions, you know, I, I'm a scientist, I need more than this. I've got so many questions about the miraculous, about the resurrection, about whether this is actually historically reliable. I'm a scientific person, I need more evidence. Maybe that's your big question. Or, or maybe, maybe suffering is the thing. How could God let me go through that? I can't believe in a God who would let us suffer like this. And so it's as if you just can't see him. You don't really want much to do with him. You need more. Well, those are are good questions. Those are good things to come and ask and and dig into. But you need to hear what Jesus is saying, that the fundamental problem for all of us, scientific or otherwise, whether we've suffered a lot or otherwise, whether you have loads of questions or, or not many at all, the fundamental question and problem with humanity is that we're blind, that we don't see things as we should, and that the only way for us to become unblind is if God comes and touches us, if he comes and opens our eyes, if he comes in with his light, cuts through the fog, blows it all away, and helps you see. A couple of things we need to understand about this, though. Well, first is that it's a personal thing. Do you see that with the the blind man? We saw it last week as well. Jesus takes him aside. It's not going to be some big show, just going to be between the two of them. So to become a Christian, to be somebody who sees Jesus, it's not about what family you come from. It's not about just being in a certain place on a Sunday morning. It's about you meeting with Jesus. So have you met him? You can do that today. You can pray. You can speak to him and ask him to come and meet with you. It's a personal thing. Second, it's a gradual thing. Did you see that? It's okay for this to take a while. It took a while with me. I grew up in a Christian family, missionary family, you know, serving Jesus out in, uh, in the sticks somewhere on the other side of the world. My parents knew Jesus. They taught me about him from probably before I can remember. But it took me a long time to really get to grips with this. And it is, for almost everyone, a gradual thing. Like with a blind man, like with Peter and the disciples. Think how many miracles they see. I mean, has anyone in here ever seen one miracle? Not many hands, but... Think how many miracles these people, these disciples had seen, but they still didn't quite get it. It's a gradual thing for them that Jesus was patient with them. And Jesus will be patient with you. Ask him to come and meet you personally. Ask him to open your eyes, but don't be impatient. Sometimes, often, it's a gradual process. And third, it's, it's a dependent process. Did you see that? Jesus is the one who has to do it. The man needs Jesus to do it. At every point, he needs people to bring him to Jesus. He needs Jesus to be willing to do it. 
He needs Jesus to lay his hands on him or speak to him or do whatever it takes to bring him to have open eyes and to see Jesus. That's what the disciples need. That's what you and I need. We need to to come to Jesus personally. We need to be okay with it being a gradual thing, putting slowly the pieces of the jigsaw together. We get a few pieces over here and then we can't go there anymore. We've got lots of questions and just don't know how to answer them. And so we work on this piece of the jigsaw over here. And then we're not sure about, and so we work on this piece over here. And gradually, the Lord puts it all together, and you can see. Can I encourage you not to wait for the end of the process before you start it? Um, Come to Jesus straight away. Come to Jesus. Um, I mean, it's a good story, isn't it? This story about Peter. He's the hero one moment, and then the, the villain the next. What could he do? What could he do, apart from being rebuked, Jesus didn't leave him there. He could come to Jesus. He could keep on listening to him and keep on um, hearing about him, keep on looking at him. And one day he would see even more clearly than he did at this moment. So back to that question again. Who do you say that I am? What do other people say? You could think of what your family say, what your friends say, what our world says, what the person sitting next to you says. But no, what do you say? Who do you say I am? Well, what do you say? What do I say? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for being so patient with us. We're sorry for how we are blind to you, how we often hide behind um, questions or often hide behind certain things, but Father, we're sorry for really how this is a um, a self-imposed blindness. Sometimes we're just cynical and we want more than... Um, than you've given to us. We want more than we need. Father, sometimes we're just uh, foggy and we just can't see it and we don't know why. Father, we're sorry for that. Uh, we're sorry for our own part in that in walking away from you and closing our eyes and not really wanting it to be true. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for that. Would you be merciful and gracious to us like you were patient and gracious and merciful to Peter. Father, to sting him with a rebuke like that and to bring him close, to keep him close, to keep opening his eyes gradually so that he would see and one day be an amazing preacher, be an amazing, um, courageous man who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth and even die for you. Father, we thank you so much that you're patient with us and ask that you would keep being patient with us. Ask that you would meet us personally and ask that you would help us depend on you completely. Would you open our eyes to see you more clearly? Father, each one of us, that we would know the hope to which we've been called that we'd know the depths and the riches of the grace that you've poured onto us in the Lord Jesus. Father, open our eyes, each one of us, whether we've never had them open before, would you open them for the first time? For those of us who know you already, Father, would you keep clearing that fog away that seems to descend each day? Would you clear it away that we'd see Jesus, know him, and love him even more? Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts 
Thanks for listening.